Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. My name is Mark Lewis and today we'll be discussing two articles from the March issue of the magazine. Chloe Carroll is here to talk about Testament, an exhibition at Goldsmith CCA which looks at the role of the monument in the context of recent seismic shifts triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, environmental crises and Brexit. But first I speak to Mikhail Kutia, whose feature on the surface argues that our preoccupation with depth has blinded us to the importance of the surface. So, Mikhail, your piece is um, about kind of superficiality as opposed to depth, um, and you characterise a kind of postmodern preoccupation with surface uh, as opposed to maybe a preoccupation or a concern with looking for, for something deeper. So, yeah, the, the um, well, first, I mean, like... The, Kind of like yeah, kind of it's it's not something it's something that seems to recur, kind of like at regular interval into uh, in post kind of like discourse on aesthetic and philosophy, uh, this this notion of like the between the, this sort of tension between surface and and depth. Um, I thought it was kind of something interesting. I mean, I was particularly interested with the term of superficiality because it's it's characterized in such a negative way. Um, most of the time, and uh, and whereas I, I, I kind of am always fascinated in the way we use, uh, you know, certain words in our language, in our expression, and um, and how uh, kind of like everything to do with depth is always positive, is always something that uh, that has sort of immediately a positive value attached to, whereas everything attached to superficiality immediately and. Strangely, I mean, I, I kind of like because I was having a number of discussion. Um, actually, a lot of people don't make the connection between surface and superficiality, um, because I suppose surface is seen as something neutral, whereas superficiality is immediately seen as negative, as superficial, shallow. Uh, kind of immediately, it, it kind of has these sort of reason moral resonances that are interesting. Um, yeah, I guess, um, I mean, obviously I'm very interested in all the kind of the writing by Deleuze and kind of notions of, uh, you know, I've been kind of, and these, these philosophers, but, uh, um, I found that, uh, that a lot of the, the, this has been dismissed a little bit too easily. Uh, especially, I mean, I, I'm not going to accuse Frederick Jensen because I actually like a lot of his writing, but it feels like it's it's a bit, a bit oversimplified in his in his writing on postmodernity and how we kind of kind of package together all these uh, all these um, uh, French theorists, post-structuralists, whichever name name you give them, and uh, and associated them with with late capitalism, neoliberalism, and, and this notion of postmodernity. So, I mean, generally speaking, I already don't like this sort of uh, oversimplification, as well as I, I've, I don't have a background in philosophy at all, so uh, I kind of read things when they excite me, and, and for example, I, I do feel a lot of affinity with the writings of Deleuze, I couldn't say the same uh, with with other. I don't have the same kind of like connection with, and I think they are all very different. But anyway, so the, I was kind of like interested in how this uh, that perhaps there was still something to be said about surface, not just something about the the, the postmodern surface and kind of uh, uh, of Andy Warhol or kind of like all those um, comparisons that. Um, 
that Jameson were, was were making, and to to try to uh, that it had some things today that kind of connected us uh, quite. Uh, with as well, I mean, it's it all as, I suppose it's all part of an inquiry about how, how do we inhabit this world? How do we live? How do we, and, and, and what do we make of the fact that, uh, that visibly how we've, how we've done it so far is bringing us to, you know, into a wall or to kind of like, it's it feels like things need to change but how do we do that and how do we think that um you know so um so yeah it started to become um a prism to look at a number of of things uh, of practice of uh, that uh, that 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 tensions between surface and depth superficiality and how it could be applied across many um different disciplines and actually often very counterintuitively i mean like in many ways i was like oh my god this is ridiculous and uh, but at the same time this kind of like inhabiting this this tension started to turn up actually quite interesting kind of for me anyway kind of uh, very intriguing um possibilities yeah and and some of those things are, i suppose are quite literal when it comes to surface and one of the one of the things you use it as a as a prism to look at is i guess uh anthropocentrism and how we are mining for fossil fuels under the surface of what we like what we describe as the earth is just really the surface as you, you cite Bruno Latour who says that um so maybe you could just go go into that and like you talk about mining a lot hmm. and um our quest for natural resources and how that goes against the philosophy of the surface or perhaps goes hmm. with it well, yeah, I suppose yeah, that that kind of connected. That was kind of like the first sort of spark. Um, yeah. It's like on the one hand, I was kind of um, I just come I just come across kind of this this formula by Nietzsche uh, uh, enjoining artists to to stop bravely at the surface and kind of like not. But he was meaning it more in a sort of moral way, um, kind of aesthetic moral. And uh, but at the same time, I was reading Andreas Malm, um, Fossil Capital, and uh, and he was kind of really making um, there was this very intriguing proposition that actually the the, the choice of fossil fuel did, had nothing um, necessary about them that uh, that there was at kind of and so he used the, the term energies of the flow, but mostly in his case studies looking at uh, waterworks and how evolved the waterworks uh, and is taking a number of examples which are beautifully uh, um, described in the book um, and how these waterworks were actually a lot more efficient and a lot more uh, and cheaper and reliable than than fossil fuel were at the beginning of the industrial revolution so it, it what intrigued me is then there was a deliberate choice to go and dig for fossil fuel without necessarily being a question of progress, a necessary kind of like, it wasn't necessarily a, a, a better option, but it definitely was more, um, I suppose, empowering, um, controlling. Uh, it enabled kind of like capitalists or industrialists to, to control, especially labor and workforce. So there is this connection between the exploitation of resources and the exploitation of people that immediately makes this this link, uh, and so 
and because in this description he was really talking about kind of like this water world and we're following the, 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 the surface of the earth and being really um, unobtrusive and kind of, uh, again, sort of uh, specifically following the landscape. Um, I thought there was something quite interesting there. As, at the same time, because in the last few years there's been a lot of uh, um, sort of like uh, notions of rewilding and especially kind of like been following a lot of um, of work about that it was, you know, like this to step back, that it wasn't necessary to go, for example, and plant trees, but it was much better to let them grow and let kind of the... the so this notion of, of kind of like pulling away and letting things, letting things grow, letting things... Uh, it, it could... Uh, in in a relationship with the land, I suppose, and a relationship with resources, and a relationship with uh, with how we engage with other living form and living um, and other materials, and uh, so yeah, it becomes this uh, this kind of uh, sort of ethic of life of of being uh, being of the surface, looking at the surface, and and not trying to go beyond it, um, or or under it, or. Mm. Um, yeah, it's kind of like it, it's a sort of mixing of analogies and metaphors. <laughs> so it, it's mm. a bit uh, superficial. <laughs> mm. um, mining, mining specifically is like a, a subject matter in a few of the artworks that you cite. The um, Otterbong, Otterbong and Kanja yeah. um, work and also the Steve McQueen Gravesend work. Maybe you could just talk about how you, how you use those artworks as examples. Mm, the, um, well, yeah, I, I suppose like the um, I had come kind of come across a number of I mean like a new and Kanga's work on a number of the of occasion and there was uh, and kind of a, went a number of her talk and it was very uh, kind of I got really interested in this um, well I mean like first there is all this practice she has of kind of reconnecting around around object and kind of re, re making this link between uh, between where do these objects and and where they come from and how they've been extracted. So there is something in our practice and it's really about, again, echoing something of, of Latour, of, that we have to generate new description, that you have to, we have to, to kind of inventory where we are, what we need. So there was something in our practice and I found quite fascinating for this. But in, in the particular one on, on the... Um, that, it was kind of like it actually recurred in several of her work with the Tsumeb um, uh, mine in uh, uh, Namibia, uh, where the what what I thought was striking was uh, um, the mine existed and people had been using that mine, like the, the the local people, for for a very long time, and it was part of a. It was part of their their economy. It was part of an exchange. It was part of a kind of a, so. It wasn't like if they didn't know. It wasn't like if they, they ignored it. They, they knew about it, and it was it was integrated in a way of life. And kind of in the early twentieth century, with kind of the German company, the contrast that suddenly in in the form of of relation with the place, they they completely emptied the. the the same, they, 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 they actually like it was like uh, I think like the the mine was uh, one thousand three hundred meter deep, 
and, uh, and it was rich of like hundreds and hundreds of different minerals. And that has been completely emptied. I think there is, there is a few le things left, but so it was just this how um, that in 100 years, something that has been there for, for millions of years was gone. And uh, it's kind of this, this relationship with resources and that, um, and, and with the, the, Grafson by Steve McQueen, what was uh, because he's also talking about mining, and what is striking is that uh, this he was focusing on uh, on minerals and are needed for new technologies. Uh, so in fact, it hasn't changed at all. Whether we were kind of exploiting people for for silver, for coal, for it's always the same relationship of exploitation, both of the natural the natural environment, the people. Uh, and we don't, we are not changing. I mean, like, so it, it does feel like, uh, okay, even if we move away from fossil fuel, even if we manage to move away from fossil fuel, if we don't change the way we relate uh, to natural resources, the way we, we use them, and the way, and actually the way that we exploit people to use these resources, I don't see any, um, uh, how we are going to get to these sort of dead end of, of kind of a climate and ecological crisis. We really, uh, I do think it's a, a larger rethink that needs to be done. And this is kind of what I'm, what I was trying to tease out. What could it be? How could we change the way we position ourselves to each other, to other living creatures and, and to, so that's uh, because as, uh, as Steve McQueen or uh, Anne Kanga's example shows, we are not changing. It's, it's it may be new technology, but it's exactly the same kind of exploitative and extractive type of practice. Is this uh, this is what Naomi Klein would call the the, the sacrifice zones? Yes. Um, yeah, you you cite you cite Klein quite a, quite a, quite a bit in the piece. How does her writing how's her writing influenced influence your thinking around this? Well, I mean, again, she's been, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think she's a very good um, kind of commentator. I mean, like she, she engaged with a number of, uh, and I thought this notion of, of sacrifice, sacrificial zone was particularly interesting in that um, we, uh, we take it for granted uh, that for the progress, for the greater good, then we can just sacrifice certain parts of the world and certain people. And that's that. It's like because so I think as long as we have this thinking, there is going to be a problem. Um, we shouldn't, you know, like how can can we find solution that doesn't require us to sacrifice an entire kind of like landscape or an entire uh, class of people? Or I mean, like when kind of like it's still uh, just talking, you know, like was just talking with a friend um, that uh, says she lives on a, uh, uh, in Ireland on, a, on the site of a silver mine. They can't use the water. They can't grow vegetables. Anyway, this is still today. I mean, like the, because it's, it's so saturated with chemicals um, that it's unsafe for human consumption. So kind of it's, there's something very troubling about not even being able to draw your own vegetables and consume them because you'll poison yourself. It's really kind of as, you know, the, <laughs> as far as you can go in, in the kind of the alienation to the old, own place where you live. So kind of how do we stop thinking in terms of sacrificial zone? How can we, and, and that, that's valid, I think, for, you know, for nuclear plants or even for, you know, like the, the, that suddenly certain areas will be marked off as 
off limit and that we can just because it it seems to be so how do we get out of this particular way of thinking and how we do um, to uh, kind of against uh, kind of teasing possibilities and and yeah mm. sort of shifting a way of um, our relationship and so that that's uh, yeah I, I found that she has uh, she, she raised quite a, a, a set of very intriguing uh, proposition in her writing so yeah mm. um, can we talk about the, the passage when you you talk about Richard Moss's work the heat map series um, mm-hmm. and this is kind of tied into a question around I guess the role of art criticism and whether the art critic can or should stop at the surface. Um, and it feels like it's tied in for me anyway, it feels like it's tied in with this idea of kind of superficial seeming technology again, with the, the mineral cost behind that, that you don't always see. Um, mm. Yeah, no, I, it was kind of, uh, I have a, um, a sort of troubled relationship with that, <laughs> with that work. Mm. Um, because obviously, lots of lot of what I've been reading about his work, and I, I know there is all this um, this desire of of showing um, refugees, refugee camps, and uh, and a lot of things I've been reading about the work tended to be really techno orientated. I mean, it was all about this, uh, but it becomes a sort of yeah. A glorification. I mean, like the, the the previous work he had done with the magenta, you know, like this 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 what is this infrared kind of special surveillance uh, films that were used to 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 find people hiding. Uh, so, the, but it become a sort of this uh, almost this magenta in, in the in the kind of almost a brand and it felt like there was a little bit of that as well in using these um, these really kind of uh, powerful um, cameras that use kind of like heat kind of recording heat rather than light Um, uh, yeah I'm kind of ambivalent about it but yet I I thought kind of like this uh, there was some things without because like when I first saw one of those images, I didn't know any of the, the and I do, I, I, I did think this image was absolutely fascinating and intriguing. And the more I kind of looked at it, the more intriguing it became and the more, and, and kind of like, so yeah, I was actually wondering, you know, like, how much do I need to know? How much is it kind of like the, um, yeah, it felt almost like a distraction of, of knowing kind of like too much about, um, about the technical aspect of it. And um, and obviously, I mean, like, and I know that was part of the work of the whole military apparatus and uh, that kind of ambivalence with it. But uh, I, I thought in some aspect it worked and some other aspect didn't work so well. And um, but still, I mean, like some of these images I thought were absolutely fascinating and obviously kind of uh, quite um, continued to be <laughs> to be topical as well, because they, they, they keep kind of turning up different aspects. Uh, but yeah. It was kind of interesting to see sometimes uh, because, like, yeah, in the criticism I read about the work, there was very little description, in fact. Mm-hmm. It was mostly about the means that had kind of... Uh, and I actually thought it was a pity because some of these images really needed time to just be looked at. And uh, and actually, most of it was there. I mean, like, most of the kind of intentions could be just on the surface. <laughs> Is, is it, uh, yeah, is it, so it's a kind of ethical question around Richard Moss's work specifically about, yeah, work which is on the surface. I, I think I saw this show, the, the Barbican, right? The, the curve. 
which mm. uh, the work that's on the surface is incredibly powerful or aesthetically yeah branded and recognizable as a richard moss photograph but which is obviously used to draw attention or describe like the plight of refugee communities is is there is that is that an, a kind of ethical question for you well yeah no, just, um i suppose kind of like well yeah i mean in, in a sense it's part of um and I suppose that was kind of my original kind of like uh, encounter with Nietzsche. It was this idea that uh, I was kind of researching an essay on the responsibility, irresponsibility of the artist. And, um, and you know, I suppose it's kind of like it's a sort of recurring um, kind of issue. It's, uh, um, it's kind of like when, when kind of artists get a bit too... Um, I just suppose kind of like um, militant or kind of like to to involve in in meaning and I mean that was kind of the uh, that they might uh, they might not let the material speak for them for itself as much as as uh, and that they, they they start to impose and and constrain the material in a certain way that uh, I mean like it's it's kind of age old kind of issue and uh, um, and yeah it's it's it, there has been kind of there. There is period where it it come back, and it feels like there is a lot of uh, intention, uh, good intentions, and uh, but it's uh, kind of sometimes it can be irritating, and um, I suppose uh, yeah. So that was kind of like so some of the work it feels that it's too much on its sleeve. It's too evi- it's too obvious, and I just don't don't get involved. Whereas these kind of these these images of the camp. Uh, they were mysterious. They, they they had their mystery about them, and I, like I say, maybe of the context I, I encountered them, um, uh, it was you know like they worked very well because of because of that um, ambivalence. And um, but yeah, this kind of this this is a kind of like old <laughs> qualm with artists, and uh, but it, it is kind of like I, and I suppose we are all trying to find. How do we engage with 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 now with the or kind of like the kind of the political ecological um, situation and uh, it's kind of always trying to find to come to grip to it and whether as artist or or writer or you know whichever it's it's always how how do we situate ourselves again? Um, hmm. I yeah I also wanted to talk about the the section where you talk about sleep and how we we place value on deep sleep as opposed to maybe a shorter, shallower sleep or more frequent, shallower sleep. And I guess that's a societal construct around hours in the day and working hours. But I was interested in that context. Um, You talk about E.L. Putnam's work um, and the feminist theory around interruption, which I kind of took to mean interrupted sleep by maybe a young baby or... Um, the, the 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 maternal interruption it's kind of more uh, it's not just about sleep it's kind of about yeah. the situation of being a young mother I mean, to be a mother and to be in that constant state where you can't um, kind of like uh, you're interrupted constantly you can you know you're trying to work and you have these constant interruptions and uh, so I suppose that's kind of like this whole body of feminism is trying to kind of draw attention and but 
I was, uh, and this is why I was making as well this connection between. So yeah, that's one part that I thought most uh, counterintuitive because yeah, of course I love my sleep and I love the kind of the idea of a good good night sleep. And but if you you know again, I thought because okay, why you know why should good sleep be a deep sleep, be a continuous sleep? Why should it be like that? And what would it mean as well for all those people that are actually. Um, not getting it for one reason or another. I mean, like the it becomes because of the pressure of work, because of the the. the I mean, like I love that book by Jonathan Query of on twenty four seven and the end of sleep, um, late capitalism and the end of sleep. I think, it's, uh, and uh, it was quite you know like you do want to hang on to your sleep <laughs> even more after reading it, and yet kind of like so if but I was. If we have this idea of a good and you know, so good sleep as deep and continuous, then we are constantly. If we can't attain it, which is kind of more and more people, uh, what you know, like we are in a constant state of frustration because we can't reach it and we can't. Um, uh, it it's it's always something's beyond our reach. So, what if? And then this was kind of where it was interesting to read some of the kind of um, feminist or kind of women's view. Uh, or like so, uh, the, the filmmaker Tricia O'Brien, when she's talking about this planet uh, of that kind of echoes what the sleep of a, of a mother of kind of of a young child would be. Um, what if that was another form of sleep that could be just as good, uh, not deep, but kind of small, short bursts of sleeps that um, and uh, and that could take place at different places, and, and couldn't that be that? just as good, uh, just as um, important, but needs a, f- a different type of organization and a different type of... Uh, um, and it just happened that I came across... You know, I, I don't know, apparently there is some contestation over this research, but there is this uh, uh, Ro- uh, Roger Ekirch, I think his name, that has kind of been doing research on uh, on literature, medieval literature, and that will apparently show that... Um, that in fact, for me, for many people, they like there wasn't an, a one night. It was kind of split in two. Uh, that there was a sort of enter uh, around midnight. Uh, there will be like one or two hours um, of wake, and there is speculation about you know like the maybe kind of uh, maybe it was because it was too dangerous to have to have the whole night or it was, you know, like, uh, um, so there is some discussion. But I just thought it was intriguing, you know, and maybe so. Maybe this is a sort of modern kind of evolution, the one night sleep. Um, and what if, what if it is? What does it imply? And what does it mean for our kind of way that of conceiving? Or uh, So I just kind of like to play with this. Um, and the same way, something that I'm actually quite interested about is how it connects with um, the same way that we you know, research. You know, we always want these periods of uninterrupted, continuous, deep research. But do we ever get them? <laughs> and are they so... Um, and then it's kind of like, when I do get them, am I so productive or am I so creative when I when I suddenly have this large amount of time, which I, not very often, but... So it's, again, sort of a certain idea of what research should be. How many people actually get it, especially with the constant changing in academia? I don't think many people are getting much break or enough break. So, so there is again this sort of idea, and uh, so it's something that I'd like to. Uh, the but yeah, kind of I, I think it's interesting to always 
question what we take for granted as being good. And um, and to just wonder, it's kind of like, you know, what if we uh, kind of like, well, like if we shift it and like if we, if we kind of like reverse the value and see what it mm. might turn up. And um, what about E.L. Putnam's work specifically? Because I, I hadn't heard about it. Um, and it kind of ties together some of those ideas with like digital, the idea of digital interruption or? Yeah, she's an artist and uh, philosopher. She's, um, uh, she, and um, she's, she's been doing a lot of performance work, but for the last two years, she's been working on these, uh, these sketches, these digital sketches. Um, and she has been kind of producing a lot of them. So they, they, they kind of evolve, often kind of like uh, playing around this notion of uh, illustrating in a way through kind of digital means these states, states of burnout, state of interruption, state of, 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 of panic. It was all, all around the COVID time as well. So this was why she wasn't doing kind of performative work, kind of, uh, so that, that that's becomes another form of, of performance. And um, she's also, uh, so she's also a researcher and she has been um, doing this connection between uh, between kind of like work, feminist work of the body of interruption. So, so like Lisa Baritzer, but uh, also connecting it with, um, uh, with kind of like the digital uh, realm where the, the, the uh, again, where there is also a, quite a lot of uh, theory and, and body of work that sort of look at this idea that, um, then kind of uh, what is considered as as a, as a glitch, as as an interruption, as um, uh, as a noise, everything that is not as you know, like when things are not working smoothly, uh, like when an app doesn't open on your browser, <laughs> actually could turn out certain uh, certain forms of alternative, certain form of resistance, maybe certain form of of, uh, of way of of recreating. So. These are kind of, uh, so she's sort of tidying, uh, so in a number of essays, she's been kind of bringing these two together, this sort of maternal interruption and the kind of like um, uh, digital digital technological interruption and uh, and kind of seeing how these kind of, kind of like, how they kind of uh, resonate from each other. And she actually has a, a book coming out uh, in May on kind of on this uh, on this topic, so it was interesting both to see her work, the digital work she has done, um, uh, like the, the 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 video, like she had done one video with her daughter, and the, the, the sketches. They are often interactive. You can they are all on uh, they are all stored online. There is a kind of they can be they can be accessed, and and then as well kind of the way she has developed the the the, the writing on this. So uh, so yeah, she's quite a fascinating artist and it's been. Uh, really interesting to kind of work, uh, getting to know our work better. Hmm. Just a reminder before we talk to Chloe Carroll that you can read both of these articles in the current issue of Art Monthly magazine, which is available online at artmonthly.co.uk. Uh, you can also find a full back catalogue of the Art Monthly talk show at artmonthly.co.uk slash events. Okay, so Chloe, you've um, written a review of um, an exhibition called Testament at Goldsmith CCA, which is a very large group show about monuments. Um, maybe just give us an overview of the, the exhibition and how you found it. Um, yeah, sure. So um, Testament is a group show in which um, 
47 artists have been asked to make proposals um, for uh, sort of monumental artworks or monuments. Um, and the proposals can take any form. Um, so some artists have just um, sort of made maquettes or sketches, um, and some have made sort of full-scale renditions of the sort of monument that they would want to make. Um, some have uh, sort of had uh, stand-ins or, or placeholders for um, monuments which are then elucidated by a proposal text. So each work has a text that sits on the wall alongside the artwork. Um, and uh, it's incredibly big, incredibly sprawling, um, and uh, gives an incredibly um, multifaceted and quite messy um, overview of what a monument might be and what monuments might consist of. Um, so, yeah, I found it very enjoyable in that sort of sprawlingness um, and the way that it, it refuses to sort of settle on one idea of what a monument might be. Mm. And it feels like, I guess, in the, in the catalogue and... It try it kind of contextualizes itself with obviously a lot of the stuff that went on during the Black Lives Matter protests and the um, you talk about the metal box around the Winston Churchill statue in Parliament Square to protect it, I guess, from from protesters after it's vandalized, um, and some of the historical moments in the, the Spanish Civil War with the sandbags around the around the statues. Maybe just uh, yeah, tell us tell us how this exhibition, I guess at least purports to to fit into to what's been happening in recent years and what's what's happening in 2022. Mm. So I think I guess the the important context that precedes it is um, the public's sort of changing um, perception of what a monument can and should be um, and whether monuments should in reality exist at all especially when they are specifically monuments to someone or something um, rather than say a, a, a monument which is more of a statue or a decorative fountain of a sort of a ancient deity. Um, I think it sort of it aims to to dissect that in the wake of um, a um, quite quite sort of concentrated um, public change in opinion. Um, you know, we just saw the uh, the Colston Four acquitted, which is excellent. Um, and uh, as I said, the uh, the Winston Churchill statue um, has been desperately protected um, after it was vandalized, either by um, a metal box or by a row of policemen. Um, so a lot of the works in the show deal with this idea of sort of protecting um, or covering or perhaps abolishing the monument. Um, so the way that I sort of approached the show in my review was to think about um, an article by Miguel Caballero um, in which um, the Spanish Civil War's um, sort of covering up of monuments um, in Madrid um, around the 1930s, 1940s um, was, it sort of presented a, a new way to think about monumentality um, and uh, thinking about it um, as something which must be at once protected and then also perhaps negated. Um, so I reference um, the uh, covering up of monuments in Madrid by um, these sort of very large geometric um, sandbag, wood and brick structures that were actually assembled by um, very large teams of avant-garde architects and engineers and work crews. It was quite a, a brilliant effort. 
um, and created in their protection and obscuring of um, Madrid's monuments a sort of a new, quite radical modernist vernacular, um, which was sort of fitting um, with their wartime propaganda of sort of gleaming uh, geometric architect uh, architectures um, and a sort of the idea of, of a of a quite geometric future. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting entry point because a lot of the artworks think about this idea of covering, um, such as Elizabeth Price's work, um, Renderer for an Unspecified Statue. It's a silk satin quilt um, in sort of uh, deep purple violet hues. Um, and uh, it reflects a memory of hers from when she was a child, um, seeing fabric sheets used to cover statues in her local churches um, in the lead up to Easter. Um, and she used to find these forms that they created when these statues were covered, very sort of alien, very fascinating, quite morbid. Um, and uh, she presents this artwork, this proposal, um, as something which can be used as and when needed um, for an unspecified statue. Um, to sort of remove it from sight, she says, whilst rendering it visible. So these sort of dichotomies um, play out a lot in the exhibition um, and a lot through um, several of the works. Yeah, that um, the room that that piece was in, was it was next to the, the piece by Olu Oganaki, the, um, mm. the plinth that was the, the recreation of the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, but made out of like cheap kind of OCB chipboard mm. with nothing on it. And also the the sound piece, which I can't find the name right now, Carl Gent's piece, the the the, uh, the mixtape for Julian of Norwich, mm. which was like obviously an immaterial like sound piece, pirated tape compilation, you call it on the on the balcony. It felt like that whole that whole room was like a gesturing towards, I guess, the absence of of a monument or the in a kind of subtle way the taking down of monuments or the the de dethroning of monuments mm, yeah exactly i mean i think that um olu organica's work is actually um really interesting in, in relation to um your writing on surface um michelle uh sort of um focusing on the the surface of the um of the of the monument um you know these wood chips um presumably swept up from a factory floor coagulated into a a scaled down maquette of the fourth plinth, which itself is a sort of a surface monument, right? It's a it's a monument, um, not specifically to anything, to be you know constantly temporarily overwritten by artworks, by sculptures and performances. Um, so I found that one very interesting in terms of thinking about monument as a as a surface act and as something which can be um, sort of used as a a space for something else to take place. Um, perhaps for performance or perhaps for an activation. Um, and uh, yeah, Carl Gantt's mixtape, um, I thought was was really quite beautiful in the way that it conceived of um, monument as something which can be like pirated, essentially, something which is um, not necessarily within the bounds of sort of bureaucracy and legality that most monuments obviously are because they're usually government sponsored. Um, I like the idea of a, of a monument being something sort of small and um, something that can be passed from hand to hand, something kind of surreptitious. Mm. And what was the other, the video work in that room mm. that was looking at the kind of the insides of statues? It was, it was like a 3D rendered 
CGI type thing and there was there would be like people loitering around them yes that was um that was by Aaron um Ratajic um and uh that sort of that 3d scanned and then inverted a lot of um existing London statues and obelisks um in uh, a way that it sort of allowed you to tunnel through them and created this uh subterranean landscape um which um the camera would sort of plow through and swirl through and you would see people um, sitting on the inside of a monument or on the edge of a monument by a vertiginous drop. Um, that was a very beautiful one in sort of subverting perspectives on monumentality mm. um, and uh, sort of making them into something fluid, which can be journeyed through rather than something solid and stable, which has to be mm. journeyed towards and around. Mm. The other work that I thought um, kind of stood out both in your review and just in the show itself was the Lloyd Corporation, the slide, the slideshow of um, it was photographs of kind of protest material like like anti-lockdown protests or um, yeah, like anti-COVID regulation um, ephemera. Um, yeah. And it kind of it, in the show, it, it felt like it was trying to yoke together themes around um, monuments together with um, the way in which society's changed in the wake of COVID um, in a way that I didn't quite I didn't quite believe or something and I, I was just yeah. wondering how you felt that this work fit into that or yeah. made sense of that yeah it was it was quite a tricky one for me to reconcile with the rest of the exhibition because whilst a lot of them which um, weren't necessarily obvious monuments would then sort of justify that in their uh, proposal texts or wall texts. This one really didn't. Um, the wall text was um, the transcript of a WhatsApp conversation between the members of Lloyd Corporation um, as they shared images of um, various uh, sort of lamppost stickers and flyposts, um, the, the same ones which we see um, in the um, slide projection in the show. I think there are 80 in total. Um, so it sort of, it goes without answering its own question in a way. Um, but it's a very productive question, um, I think, in terms of how um, the archival and the monumental um, can sit together. Um, and I think that's especially important in a show which is named Testament, um, when uh, the archive is so often um, how things are commemorated um, in a smaller, more sort of um, a, a less easily accessible way. Um, because the archive and the monumental are such different, fundamentally different um, aesthetically modes of commemoration. Um, and I think I'm interested in how they, they try and um, join those things together um, and think about monumentality, not necessarily as something which is a, a consensus of public, public opinion, um, which is what we've seen such a backlash against recently, but as more of a sort of fragmented um sort of uh, polyvocal um collection of clashing statements um and sort of difficult statements which aren't necessarily um well which in many cases aren't true and which many cases are quite polemic um and quite reactionary um so yeah, yeah I, I found that a very tricky one but but a very sort of a productive one in a way yeah I found myself spending a lot of time with that work as well and I like mm -hmm. I had no 
no problem with it evading mm. the brief as it were like and making no attempt to kind of justify yeah. it I enjoyed that because it could have been easy for them, right, to use one of their, so this is an ongoing um, strand of research for them. It could have been very easy for them to use one of the um, entire lampposts um, that they sometimes show with um, flypost stucco all over them, mm. because those things are quite monumental in their scale and the way they look. Um, and instead, they chose to, to totally um, avoid that and um, go for something a bit more tricky and a bit more sort of uh, slippery. I fa- yeah, I did. F- I found the um, the constant need for either the exhibition or the artists themselves to need to refer back to to the brief that they were given um, a little bit prescriptive at times. Mm. I don't know whether you felt the same thing at all. It's I guess it's been such a long time since I've seen an exhibition where artists have had to respond to a specific brief. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do sometimes find that those limitations can make for some really interesting work, some unexpected work, which you wouldn't have seen before and which allows artists to move out of a a certain area of practice or a certain comfort zone. Um, But of course that comes with its its own limitations. Um, And uh, it's sort of, it can be where some of the works um, have, you know, where they fail. Um, But I also think there's something quite, beautiful about a show which invites artists to propose things um, and gathers all of those things together whether they entirely succeed or not right so that there's a whole a whole spectrum the the idea of of having to succeed um, at creating a proposal for a monument is um, totally negated it's not expected um, and I guess it allows us to rethink an idea of like, what is a successful artwork? What is a complete artwork? What is an artwork that's ready to be shown? Um, I really enjoyed seeing all the artist's texts and how they they thought about approaching the work and how they wanted to frame it um, in a way that you don't often get to see when the framework is entirely sort of curatorial or when existing works adhering to a theme are brought together uh, for a group show. Hmm. One work, one work that fell um, kind of quietly on a different register was the, the work you talk about, the Adam Framaway um, mm. Parakeet's Garden, proposal for a Parakeet's Garden. Um, yeah, what what did you make of that work or what was the story? Um, so, yeah, Adam Faramari, um proposed that um, not necessarily any sort of monument in terms of uh, the work didn't want to adhere to a strict sort of perimeter or a space or any sort of modification of a landscape. Um, instead, it's sort of an imagined sanctuary which can appear anywhere. Um, and um, it's termed a, a monument for the displaced. Um, and uh, in doing that, it, I think, manages to conceive of a monumentality which is um, fluid and um, which can sort of spring up in a more migratory way. Um, I really love the idea that it implies basically that a monument could just appear wherever a parakeet lands. Um, it doesn't have to be built, it doesn't have to be permanent. I think that's something that, that runs through a lot of the works um, in um, the way that they think about monumentality as something which can spring up and disappear. Um, anywhere and at any time um 
I really enjoyed um, Ghislaine Lung's um, score for a monument, which consisted of a um, inflatable pub um, and uh, the specifications of that artwork um, say that it should be inflated um, so that it sort of fills to its maximum whatever space it is put in. Um, so it's sort of adjustable um, and soft and um, sort of not a very rigid material. Um, I really enjoyed how with that one, for instance, you could hear the um, machinery wearing away mm. to keep it puffed up, to keep it inflated, like a sort of bouncy castle. Um, and that sort of spoke to maybe the efforts um, and the uh, the sort of um, the work and labor and um, power and resources that go into maintaining monuments and go into maintaining um, icons of, of sort of public perception. Um, they're they're sort not just a given. They're um, there's things which have to be worked to be will have to sort of have uh, labor behind them in order to maintain them. Um, so whilst that was a really fun work. Um, and it's sort of, I think it was a, a real high point of the exhibition in terms of humour, because um, everybody loves uh, seeing, you know, a monument to the the one truly great British thing, the pub. Um, it also, I think, had a lot of um, thought behind it. I, I really, I thought that was quite an interesting one in terms of surface as well, because uh, I'm sure that every visitor who saw it probably took a little sneaky peek behind the, uh, the Velcro shut door to see if there was any actual sort of pub furniture or any sort of inside. And of course there isn't, it's just empty. Um, but on a surface level, it, it just operates um, as a sort of a, a very a humorous take on monumentality. Yeah, I um, found that. What, what we sort of pride ourselves on. Yeah, I found that similarly. I like the, um, the Stuart Middleton work in the show that was uh, it's called Motivation and Personality. Like a long uh, stitched together chain of just old clothes, uh, yeah, old t-shirts, old jumpers. That yeah. felt similarly like, um, well, I guess malleable to whichever space you'd like to in install it in kind of thing and just like an ongoing, quite listless collation of material. Yeah. Just felt like it would run and run. I'm just, yeah, reading in the press release that it's been going on for five years. Um, yeah yeah it's really quite amazing and you can see it all rolled up on the um on the balcony yeah. space above um sort of after you see it it depends which way around the exhibition you go but it's it's a surprise from whatever angle you encounter it yeah it felt and like a quite nicely place. nicely understated way of kind of undermining the monumentality of the, the assignment or or mm. the work or the or the art gallery um yeah, yeah. And in the same way that, say, um, Adam Faramari's um, proposal for a parakeet's garden thinks about the monument as something which can move around, um, I think that Ghislaine Lung's pub and um, Stuart Middleton's um, work also sort of um, successfully achieve that idea of uh, something that can be more wandering and more mm. sprawling. Mm. Um. I, when you were speaking, um, Michaela, um, Michaela, yeah. um, I, um, I thought I really loved what you were saying about Ottoman and Kanga's work. Um, and I really appreciated reading about that too. Um, and I think that, um, her work is really good at thinking about 
monumentality and memorials mm. um and uh sort of conceiving of memorials as something which aren't just single-sided and um which uh sort of uh, are very um sort of uh oh, what am I trying to say well I enjoyed how you spoke about Otomo and Kanga and I think she's really interesting in how she talks about counter memorials um she um in some of her works about the Sumed mine that you were talking about um says that everything we build or construct in one space creates like an inverse hole of emptiness in another uh where the materials have been um mined and extracted um and she argues for a sort of duality of thinking um so that the other space like the emptied mine um also becomes a monument a counter monument a sort of inverse monument and that that can be as weighty yeah. as like it's it's upright twin monument um yeah i think that that maybe came through a little bit or at least i was reminded of it um in um adam um uh Ratajic's work um, which has the 3D scanned and inverted London monuments um, of thinking of sort of how what is emptied from one space um, appears in another and uh, how a monument always exists in those sort of two spaces at once, one upright, one sort of inverse. Yeah. I, I was really interested in what, uh, I, I just kind of like when you were talking about this uh, um, I can't remember the, the the artist that used kind of archive as as monument, and um, yeah, no, suddenly it kind of like uh, it's just like because archive in a way it's like the it's an it's an open ended kind of it's it's kind of like you can you can follow the genealogy of the of the events through the through the documents and you can you can always you you kind of uh, access it and and construct it. Uh, whoever is coming makes their own construction with it, whereas the monument mm. feels like it's more like an, a single origin thing. It's like mm. all the meanings have been wrapped up. Everything like it's all it's all tidied up and yeah, forms, right, neat with a bow, and that's it. And that's that's all yeah. you've got. Kind of like the the narrative is closed. Um, mm. So yeah, I kind of like it's kind of never thought of the. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I really like that idea of of kind of keep so to keep keep it completely open so so yeah it's a counter monument um mm. it's, yeah, like an open sourced monument yes <laughs> yeah yeah and it sort of makes me wonder like is it worth reconciling the archival and the monumental does that create a new form or do these things have to have their own separate spaces you know is the archival able to be what it is because it doesn't have to be monumental and should mm. we try and bring those two things into the same space i'm not sure um but as I said, I think it's it's a work that just raises a lot of really fascinating questions about um, forms of memory and forms of testament. Yeah, the same actually with um, Roger Hyons's work, which is um, one that we didn't. Because it's the placards, about. the placards, yeah. the kind of memorials to people who've died from from um, BSE. Is, is it BSE? BSE, yeah, yeah. and um, VCJD. Yeah, um, yeah. Variant Creutzfeldt Jakob disease. Yeah, that was an interesting work. We can talk, let's talk about that work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was that was a personal favorite of mine. I think because it so clearly delineated um, what the proposal was and what the resultant monument would be. 
um, instead of showing what the monument would be, um, Heinz used the space to elaborate on a proposal um, and used the wall text to talk about what the monument would look like and what material it would be and where it would be. Um, so the proposal was made up of a lot of um, placards um, from uh, protests um, against um, the the sort of the neglect of, of BSC patients. Um, and uh, I think that the way that they were used was incredibly moving um, and sort of not trying to make them something monumental, but to appreciate their sort of transitory nature um, and to think about protest and, and public mourning, public grief as things which can't necessarily be monumental in themselves, but that can feed into something very small and concentrated. So the proposed work is actually um, a single, um, quite small 50 by 100 centimeter sheet of silver um, onto which um, the uh, families and, and friends of lost loved ones can apply scents that remind them um, of those who they've lost. Um, and I just thought it was it was very beautiful to speak about that, but not to show it, because something that is such a commemoration um, sort of couldn't be shown in that space. It couldn't be shown in a, in a group exhibition. Um, it would have to be cited it would have to be approved um by the, the the sort of bureaucratic forces um that it needs to navigate through um well, and also the, the families right and the, mm-hmm. yeah 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 you'd assume i mean i know that um the artist has been um working quite closely um with a lot of um people um who have lost loved ones because of um bse mm. um so that one felt very it it sort of it felt very intimate and um yeah and sort of it, it scaled in on something maybe it's its strength was also in um thinking about a monument to something specific testament to something yeah um rather than monumentality in general okay thank you so much to both Michaela and Chloe for coming on the show uh, once again you can read both of their articles in the current issue of the magazine available online at artmonthly.co.uk. You can also subscribe to the monthly print magazine at artmonthly.co.uk slash buy. Thank you to Resonance FM for hosting us. Goodbye.